My name's Dallas Harvey. I'm a member here at UBC. I've been here about a year and a half. I'm the husband to Martha, the children's minister, father to Eloise and Beau. I serve here in a number of capacities, primarily in the UKids ministry, but you may see me up here on occasion playing bass and doing other things around the church. I love it here. I love this church, and I have grown so much as a result of my time here. Uh, and so it is a privilege for me to be here and getting to share the word with you. So I'm excited. I hope you're as excited. Maybe you don't know me. Maybe you do. But I just love being in the Word. And so uh, we'll, we'll get in the Word in a minute. But first, Happy New Year, I guess. I, we're like a week late, right? But it, it, this is the first time we're seeing you here in this room in the New Year. So Happy New Year nonetheless. And for whatever reason, as a culture, we've decided, okay, January 1st, that's when we're going to make a bunch of life change, right? And for whatever reason, we don't think about doing it at other times of the year as much as we do January 1st. And whether that's silly or not, we make what? New Year's resolutions, okay? And what are some of the things that we make resolutions about? Weight loss is like the first thing, right? Better diet, better sleep. Maybe we're going to get a, a hold of our finances for the first time and you've already paid for a Dave Ramsey course already. I don't know. <laughs> Jeremiah has, has thoughts on Dave Ramsey, by the way. Ask him about it. Maybe your resolutions are a little bit more spiritual and you want to have a, a more regular quiet time or a deeper quiet time. Maybe you want to have a better prayer life. Maybe you want to attend church more regularly. Whatever the case, there's all kinds of resolutions we make. But as we're considering life change and we're more open to it at this time of year, I want to consider a question. Specifically, I want you to consider the question. As a follower of Jesus, is your life built around what God would have it be built around? Is your life actually built around what God would have it? If it's not, what must you do to change that? And so we're going to be getting into some familiar passages we're going to be talking about the Great Commission. We're going to be talking about the things that Jesus has called us to do. And I would encourage you to understand that this sermon is specifically for you. And so I know it's easy when you hear a sermon to say, oh man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. Oh, my children need to hear this. God forbid you think, oh, my spouse needs to hear this. But if those come to mind, I encourage you to say, no, what is God saying to me? What do I need to change? And trust that God will deal with the people in your life and build them up as well. The Spirit is in them as much as it is in you. But listen now and, and trust that God is speaking to you. So go ahead and turn to your Bibles to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. If you have your Bibles, the words will also be on the screen. If you're picking a translation on your phone Bible app, I'll be reading from the ESV. And while you're turning, let's pray. Lord, we are about to look to your word, the truth, all authority. We believe it to be true, and yet sometimes we struggle so much to obey it and follow it and apply it to our lives. And so as we get here and challenge ourselves and ask questions and consider our obedience, I pray that you would not allow us to fall into doubt about our standing with you but encourage us into the glorious unknown of your kingdom work. Push us forward and thrust us out to do that which you have called us to do and build our lives around that which you have called us to build them around. So we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, Matthew 28. I will be beginning from Matthew 16, or I'm sorry, 28, verse 16. And this is the Great Commission. Many of you have this text memorized, so let's read it together. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so you have Jesus' disciples there with him. And he's speaking to them. And before he gives this great command, he claims great authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now they know he's the son of God. The fact that he would claim all authority on earth shouldn't be a shock to them. But he is the son of God. And yet he's claiming he has all authority in heaven as well. And so just briefly point out there that Jesus, the son of God, is equal to the father. And so he's saying this because there is nothing, there is no one, not even the Father, who is going to override what Jesus is saying. All authority on heaven is his. This is the beauty of that that Trinitarian presence, that, that great thing we call the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all equal. They are all three different persons, but one in the same. And yet Jesus has all this authority because he is God. And so the disciples can't say, well, maybe the Father disagrees with this. Okay, and it's kind of like a commanding officer coming in and talking to his privates and reminding them of his rank. Listen, no, no command is coming from anyone higher than me. Whatever I'm about to say is something you must listen to. As Martha put it before, Jesus is the boss, right? He's the big boss man. And so he's claiming all this authority and then with that in mind saying, no other command is going to overrule this. Go and make disciples. And so he says this to his disciples, and therefore we see that being a disciple requires you to obey the command to go and make disciples, who will in turn go and make disciples. And so there's a number of reasons why I think that as an American church, we struggle to actually follow the Great Commission. I think primarily one of those reasons is we've kind of built our churches to allow for several people to try to do all that great commission work. The pastors, the professional ministers, right? Maybe deacons or Sunday school teachers. Those are the people that that they're supposed to be out there doing the work. And yet, the command is to all of us. And and there's all kinds of ways that we can try to explain that away. I think another reason that, that we may fall into that category is for whatever reason, American Christianity differentiates between Christian converts and disciples. And almost as if there's a tier system, hey, we want you to be converted. We want you to be baptized. And then it's like, that's like a tier system. You come in, hey, I'm a Christian. I belong to this church. But to be a disciple, you mean to go out and do that? I don't know that I'm ready for that. Listen, I'm a Christian, but to be a disciple, to go do what disciples have been commanded to do, that's I'm not ready for that. I don't know Jesus enough to do that. I don't understand enough about him to go out and do that and trust him with that. When I understand more about him, perhaps then I'll I'll be a disciple. 
And I hope it's encouraging to you that the Bible doesn't differentiate. There is no such thing as a convert and a disciple in two separate tiers. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus. And so this command is to all of us. So, perhaps then, perhaps then that the reason that we're not going out and we're not eager to fulfill this and we're, we're finding ways to explain away uh, is we've got that, that idea backwards that we need to understand Jesus better before we can go out and represent him. And I would say that it's flipped. Of the many things that sometimes history has flipped, this is one of them. And I would suggest to y'all that in order to understand Jesus more, you have to obey and go out and do what he says. And when you obey, you will begin to understand Jesus' work and what his kingdom is about. And that is what he is telling his disciples to do. And he tells them, go, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded you. Not just the things that we see in the Sermon on the Mount and the easily practical, like followable things, commands that we find throughout the Gospels, but also this. If not this command, here in the Great Commission, what commands is he talking about? This is the command that he is talking about. All of them, including this one, to go and make disciples. So, Perhaps today you have found yourself, as I have and often do, struggling to fulfill my obedience to this command, to this call to go out and make disciples. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that we often forget what we've been rescued from, what Jesus has saved us from, what his death and resurrection has allowed for us, the new life that we have, we've forgotten. Which is why every day we make a commitment when we wake up to pick up the cross and follow him, but we can forget. And when we forget, we lose sight and we take for granted the salvation that is ours and the freedom that we have. And perhaps we fall into anxiety and fear and anger and stress and we, we find turmoil and strife with other people and we live in that. And if we find ourselves in that camp where we're not constantly reminding ourselves and being reminded through the Spirit or allowing the Spirit to remind us of what Jesus has done for us, why would we bother trying to help someone else find that salvation? Because we have forgotten what it means to us. Why would we care about getting that for somebody else and making sure that they have that message, getting them the letter of the gospel. And so what we see from Jesus earlier in Matthew is that the Great Commission requires great compassion. So would you turn with me a few chapters back now to chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 35. And while you're getting there, Jesus is in the thick of his ministry, he has started to pick out disciples, people unqualified for ministry. They don't know the laws like the Pharisees do or the Sadducees. They're not scribes. They're not teachers. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're ordinary people like us. And yet Jesus calls them. And it's these men 
that he is later speaking to at the end, saying, you, disciples, go make disciples. And so he's selecting these men, and he's going from city to city, and he's healing people, and he's performing miracles, and all the while he's sharing the gospel of the coming kingdom. There is, as we see, you know, if you go, let's see, what is it? In chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus tells a scribe who wants to hop on the bandwagon, look, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he's doing all of this. He has no home base. There's no headquarters. There's no rest at the end of the day that is guaranteed for Jesus and his disciples. And then another disciple says, hey, before I do this, can I go bury my father? And Jesus says, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Can you imagine if your job or employer said that to you? Hey, can I go bury my father? We need you at work. Let the dead bury the dead. It's unfathomable, but it gives you a picture of the pace of Jesus' ministry, the urgency with which he was going from city to city, proclaiming the gospel and healing and doing all of these things. He must have been exhausted. Can you imagine And I say that, give you that context, because we know we can explain away and make excuses for not being out there and not doing what we have been commanded to do. Well, we'll get to that list later. But understand what Jesus was doing, how tired he must have been. There was no break that he saw coming. He was just doing what he knew the Father wanted him to do. So, let's start. Verse 35 of chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So I want to point out three things here to focus on that Jesus did. First of all, Jesus saw the crowds and saw the need of the lost. He was out there. He was positioned with the people and could see their needs. When he saw them, he was moved deeply. He felt compassion for them. The Greek word that they use here for compassion is actually not found in classical Greek anywhere else, allegedly. I haven't read all the books, but that's what I I learned. You see this word a few other times in the Bible, but what it tells us is that the writers of these books had to come up with a word to explain a kind of compassion that was previously undescribable. And this this word for compassion means to feel in the bowels, to feel in the gut. We might say, you know, oh man, I was sick to my heart or sick to my stomach. But it was the kind of emotion that moved your literal insides. Have you ever experienced something that made you so emotionally excited or in grief that it moved your inside, your stomach jumped or plummeted, you felt it. 
So he felt that compassion. That's number two. And the third thing he did is he did something about it. He met the need while proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then he tells the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. What's the harvest? Harvest is souls. Harvest is people. There's all of these people out there, all of these lost people. They are wandering around with no real purpose in life. They're grasping at it. They're trying to convince themselves that they have true purpose and that they, they know why they're here or maybe they're, they are comfortable admitting they have no idea why they're here. They're wandering. They're in need. They're vulnerable. They're hopeless and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus sees them. And when he sees them, he's moved by them. And so he does something about it. He proclaims the gospel because ultimately that is what they need. But he also meets their needs as he is able, which Jesus was able to meet their needs. Now, I want to point out a truth that may be hard to digest, but it is real. A good harvest can go to waste without laborers to gather it. A good harvest will go to waste without laborers to gather it. Imagine the implications here. A harvest of people created in the image of God who don't have a gospel. They don't have the truth. And for whatever reason, God has seen fit to give us the responsibility of going out to proclaim that truth. That's his plan. That's the way that he has designed for us to go and meet the needs and share the gospel. That's how the harvest is gathered. And you, disciples of Jesus, are the laborers. You are the laborers. And Jesus is saying, but look, the laborers are few. So pray that God will send out more laborers into the harvest for these people, these lost people, with no shepherd. And of course, to the disciples, they knew they were included in that. They weren't thinking, yeah, he's right. We should pray that someone else would go into the harvest. We should sit here, uh, follow Jesus, and listen to his teachings, learn everything there is to know about Jesus, and just pray that other people will go out into the harvest. No, it was directed at them. And they said, Jesus said, we need more. There, you need more laborers. The harvest needs more laborers. And I don't know why that's how, why God designed it that way. But that is how he did. So, in order to see the Spirit working that compassion in us, it involves the same things that Jesus did. One, we need to see the need for lost people. So my question today is, are you in a position where you can see the need? Is your life built so that you can be where the need is and aware of the need in your city? Because it's right out there. It's right out there. And if you're looking for it, you will see it. But perhaps, whether intentionally or unintentionally, your life has been built so that you don't see the need. You're protected from seeing that need. And maybe under it all is a subconscious fear that if we see the need, we might have to do something about it. And so we stay away from certain neighborhoods, right? We 
We don't allow time for things like this, or when we have free time, we give it quickly to something else. And we don't position ourselves to see the need. But we have to be able to see the need. And when we do see the need, we need to feel something about it. And you can't muster that feeling. That's the Spirit in you. But when you ask the Spirit, Lord, show me the need, He's not going to bring you to the need and allow you to feel nothing about it. However, we are experts at finding reasons why we should not meet the need. Why we don't need to meet the need. Here's some examples. Someone else will meet the need. I can't possibly afford to meet the need. I don't have time. I can't slow down to meet a need. I don't know if it's safe for me to meet the need. Or I have kids, and it's far too tricky with kids to try to meet the needs of someone else. Like, what about my family? Like, shouldn't I be focusing on their needs? Or perhaps it's more blunt, it's none of my business what their problems are. Or you assume they are as prideful as you are and say, they don't want my help. You could probably write a book of reasons why we shouldn't meet the needs that we're faced with. I mean, just an example, this is a personal thing, how easily it is to condition ourselves to, to put the need out of our mind. What's the easiest thing to do when you come to a corner stoplight and there's a homeless person right outside your door? What's the easiest thing to do? Is to look straight ahead and not even acknowledge their humanity. And, and because if you look, you might be moved and you might have to do something about it. And so even though the need is right there, you have, you have said, Spirit, no, I'm looking right ahead. I don't have time. It's not safe. If I give them money, they'll probably just use it for drugs. We've heard these excuses before. What if Jesus used these excuses? What if he said to the prostitute, if I protect her and let her live, she'll probably just keep on prostituting. Or to the centurion, if he said, if I heal his servant, he'll just be more empowered to continue to oppress my people. What about you? If he said about you, if I die for them, they'll probably just keep on sinning. But he didn't say that because that's not the spirit of Jesus. That's not what he was about. He met the need and proclaimed the gospel especially for you. And so now he's asking that we do the same for others. So we have to stop turning opportunities to show compassion to the lost into excuses for neglecting them. That is what we have a tendency to do, to take opportunities to show compassion and turn it into excuses to neglect the lost. And so I've heard this before, especially in uh, regards to parents who have adopted children and fostered children and their loved ones or friends saying, didn't you think about how much this is going to drastically change their, your life? Like how much of a challenge this is going to be for your family or their other siblings? But the attitude isn't, what's going to happen to my life? How is my life going to change for the worse if I adopt or if I help or if I meet a need? The mindset is, what will happen if I don't? What will happen for that person if I don't meet their need? 
for that child if I don't bring them into their family. And that compassion overwhelms you. It takes yourself and it puts it away and now the focus is on the needy and the lost. So I do want to point out one more time that while Jesus is going around and meeting all of these needs, he is not doing it without proclaiming the gospel. Everyone who has their need met is also given the gospel. It says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So I want to point out that the gospel goes with compassion. Acts of compassion go with the gospel. They go together. You can't forsake one and do the other. It doesn't work that way. Jesus commands both. And we see what happens when we try to do one, assuming one is the other. Which is why I think now in America you see so many people who are turned off by the gospel because somehow it has been shared in a way that has lacked compassion. The gospel has been shared and yet there was no love or needs met. There was, there was no spirit of Jesus behind it. It was just knowledge and truth, which is good. There is power in the truth. But Jesus is saying it goes with compassion. And on the other side, if you just have acts of compassion and you're meeting needs, that's wonderful. But if there's no gospel, to what end are the needs being met? Because the ultimate need is salvation. Escape from our own sin, our own depravity, an eternality away from God. And so, as we continue to figure out, okay, God, how do I need to show more compassion in my life? Where are the needs that I'm supposed to meet? Remember that those needs are met, and yet you're called to proclaim the gospel with it. And I know that not all of us are super comfortable with that or very practiced in it, which is why in your D groups, most of you have had to do the, the three what? Circles, right? The three circles. That's a method. But not every opportunity to meet a need is going to come with a sit-down talk where someone is open to hearing about your whole worldview. And so you have to ask the Spirit, also show me how I'm supposed to pair the gospel with compassion. How do I, how do, I do that? Because some people just need their needs met and I don't, they don't have time to listen to me or they don't want to, so what do I do? And I think the Spirit will give you ways if you ask him. One is simply by pointing out to them, hey, I'm doing this because of what Jesus did for me. And if that's all that comes out of your mouth, that's truth. They don't need every single detail of the gospel because trust me, if you try to get every single detail of the gospel into one talk, you will find that you are always leaving out another detail. The Bible has many pages and it's all related to the gospel. So don't worry about trying to get every detail in, but proclaim that Jesus is the reason that you are meeting the need. There are ways to do that that are humble, that are not aggressive and invasive or requiring more of their time. There are ways that you can say, Spirit, I'm going to meet the need. Give me a great way to share why I'm doing this. Don't settle for just meeting the need and piecing out. Nor should you settle for just proclaiming the gospel and not trying to meet the need. They go together. All right. Everything we do here in our churches at UBC, if it is removed 
from a compassion for the lost has very little value. You could argue it's worthless. If we're coming here just to commune together with no interest in what's going on out there and the lost out there, what we are doing has no value. But all of the things that we do here with that Christ-like compassion that proclaims the gospel and meets the needs, that's worth everything. So here's my mild hot take of the day. If all of our churches and all of the people in our churches were so focused on this compassion, on proclaiming the gospel and meeting the needs of the lost people in their city, if that's what consumed us and drove all of our decisions and all of our efforts and all of our programming, almost all, if not all, of the things that we debate and are divided over and have bitterness over in the church would be buried. Because compassion for the lost drives us to follow Jesus in ways we could have never imagined. It thrusts us out of this room and into the harvest. It takes our focus, like we said, off of ourselves and puts it on the lost. Compassion for the lost leaves no time or energy for pettiness and bitterness and division. It moves us out of our pews and out of our Sunday school classrooms, sorry, enriched classrooms, and gets us to do the work out there that we have been called to do. Guys, look, this, this church is a wonderful thing. It is God-ordained, God-designed. We are supposed to be here. This is where we come to worship and rejoice and pray and hear about the work that everyone is doing out there, but understand that the work is out there. We come here, we learn, we teach, we pray, we encourage and build up. There's no reason to assume we don't need all this. But the work of the disciple is out there. We come to rejoice in what God is doing out there. But we can't sit here and just wait for people to trickle in, and when they trickle in, say, all right, they're here, now I'm going to share the gospel with them. That's not what Jesus tells us to do. Understand, you are the laborers of the harvest. There's no plan B. You are the laborers. And I hope that's encouraging and empowering. It's not just Jeremiah or Jason or Caroline or Martha or your deacons. It's not the praise team. It's not just the people who go into college camp. It's you. You are the laborers. And this is how we make disciples, by proclaiming the kingdom of Christ as we meet the needs around us with compassion. What sells the gospel better than compassion? Why isn't the gospel registering with a whole generation of people? Because they assume that it lacks compassion that the people who carry it and herald it don't actually meet the needs of the people they're trying to send it to. It has to go together. So what is lacking in our compassion today? Are you seeing the need in your city? Do you feel 
when you see the need, you feel anything? We are in an information-saturated age. You can see needs all over the world, on the internet, in, in a matter of minutes. And because of how drained we are by that, do you even feel anything? What does it take to move you? What are you doing about it? And like I said before, if you're not feeling compassion and you're not experiencing that, you can't just leave here today and muster up compassion. It won't last. But you can plead for the Spirit to move in you and ask it, hey, Spirit, I know I've quenched you by explaining, giving all these reasons why I can't meet the need. Forgive me, Lord. Show me the need. Make me feel that compassion of Christ and tell me what to do and give me the power to do it. So what is God calling you to do? What skills or assets has God given you so that you can go out into the harvest and make disciples of Jesus? How can you leverage your life for the gospel? I can't tell you how. Only the Spirit can. All of our lives are so uniquely different. The people we have access to the jobs we have, the time we have, our schedules, everything is so different. I can't give you a one-size-fits-all on how you shape your life around the gospel and the Great Commission. But here's a practical question that perhaps you can wrestle with today. You go home and you look around at everything God has given you and you consider the intangibles that God has given you. Consider your budget, your job, your cars, your house, your children, everything in your house, you say, okay, God, I see all that you have given me. And I understand that you gave it to bless me, but also to bless others. How do I take all of these things that you have given me and use them to make disciples? And you can do that in your home today. You can go home right now. You can talk about it with your spouse or with your kids or just contemplate it by yourself. How can I take this that God has given me and use it to make disciples and go into the harvest? Perhaps God is calling you to great change in your life. I think we like to assume and think that often we can fit God into the way that our life is right now, as it is. But more often than not, God has called us to make massive changes in our life. Scary changes that require you to trust him more than you trust human logic or wisdom. Perhaps that means your job. Perhaps he's not calling you to a career change, but maybe there's a way you can use your job to better leverage opportunities for the harvest and the gospel. Uh, perhaps it's your house. Maybe he's given you a house and you've so packed your schedule full that you don't have time to be hospitable to anyone and bring anyone in and love them and pray for them and feed them. Maybe there's ways you can get plugged in in your city. Maybe it's moving to a different city. And I don't want to encourage that too much. I love y'all. I don't want you to go anywhere. But if God is calling you to pick up and move so that you can be a light in the darkness in another place, oh, I pray you listen. As you know is something that UBC holds very dear to its heart. Perhaps it's adoption or fostering a child. 
And that is a very specific call that God puts on your heart. But if he is putting it on your heart, trust it. If you're a young person considering college or are in college considering a career, understand that you can choose a job outside of ministry, outside of a seminary, and understand, God, I want a career that's going to allow me to go places and go into the harvest and be used for you. Give me skills, give me education, give me expertise so that I can be places and meet needs while proclaiming your gospel in other parts of the world. Or right here, Before I move on, I just want to take a sidebar because I didn't have a great place to fit this in anywhere else in the message. Just some quick thoughts on children and family. It is very easy to say I can't meet the need because I have to, I have kids and, and I don't know how I can just go and do things when I have kids. And I just want to point out what a blessing it would be to your children if the culture that they grew up in was a family culture that met the needs together, that went out and they saw dad and they saw mom slow down enough, show up late to a practice to meet a need, say, hey, I'm pulling you out of school early today because we need to go meet this need. I can't, I can't give you all the examples, but understand that it's a family thing and we can't just expect that when the kids are 18 and we let them go, that they will just start meeting the needs of people if they've never seen from you what that looks like. And so maybe that added pressure is what the Spirit is giving you to help get you out the door. I want my kids to be genuine disciples of Christ. Therefore, I need to show them what that looks like. And that may be just the push you need. And I know Martha and I are wrestling with that right now. How do we do this? How do we show our kids what what we, how we meet needs, and so here's what we've tried, and it's not perfect, but every Monday night we have our, our worship time together as a family. We're trying to do that more and more, but we started with just Monday nights. It's not perfect. We fail a lot. Nighttime is not a great time for toddlers and six-year-olds. They're kind of bouncing off the walls. But once a month, we try to incorporate our mission trip, Monday night mission trip, and that looks different all the time. And no, it's not meeting all of these crazy big needs but it's an attempt. And so I encourage you, if you have kids, ask, what can I do? What can we do to raise them in a culture that's meeting needs with compassion, proclaiming the gospel message? This is what we are called to do. It's what we're all called to do. And it's what must be done to labor in the harvest and make disciples. So, in a moment, Josh is going to come up and lead us in one more song. As we sing, I want you to consider that at the end of the day, what is your fruit life? What is your, excuse me, what fruit is your life bearing? Is there anyone who is hearing the gospel of Jesus as a result of your spirit-led compassion? Is the way you are living your life and what your life is built around making disciples? And even if it is, there's probably ways you can do more. So, what has the Spirit put on your heart today? I would ask that as we sing and pray together that you would find a way to write down what the Spirit has put on your heart and make it real. Once once you've written it, you can't deny or forget that it was spoken to you.
What has God put on your heart? Let's pray together. Lord, there is so much work to do. The harvest is great and the laborers are few, but you've called us. You've called us. You allow us to be part of your kingdom work, Lord, and we we shy away from it. Lord, consume us with the Spirit. Fill us with that compassion. Position us in your city so that we can't avoid the need, so that we can't avoid feeling something so deeply that it moves us to meet a need and proclaim the gospel and show our kids and our brothers and sisters what you're doing in our lives. Lord, if we are lacking the joy and the peace that you promised today, reveal to us why, so that we can experience it again, or perhaps for the first time, Lord, experience the joy of knowing we are your children. And Lord, may that joy compel us to go out and do the work you've called us to do. And may we not leave here today making any excuses as to why we can't heed your call and go where you are sending us. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.